the author hangout episode number 107 huge amounts of hours have gone into this novel and i'm going to give it away to whoever asks for it Welcome to the Author Hangout, where we interview best-selling authors and experts in the book publishing industry to reveal the tips and advice you need to succeed as an author in today's publishing landscape. Enjoy the show. Hi, I'm Sean Manaher. Welcome to another episode of the Author Hangout, where authors like you learn how to sell more books through the lessons, experience, and wisdom from their fellow authors. He's a former BBC News reporter turned author entrepreneur, and podcast host who's using his expertise in journalism, education, and video production to create online courses that help indie authors navigate topics like social media advertising and setting the foundation for a commercially successful writing career. Besides establishing Spot Reels, a boutique video production company that tells stories through captivating video, he co-founded the self-publishing formula along with friends John Dyer and best-selling author Mark Dawson. Here to share his own journey to authorship is James Blatz. James, thanks for joining me on the Author Hangout. Hi, Sean. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely, and I'm excited to have you here. We got to meet down in Florida while you were visiting on stateside, so it was great to meet you, and now it's great to have you introduce yourself into the Author Hangout community. So it's been very exciting for this. It was a great tour of breakfast. Absolutely. Lots of food there. Yeah. So, James, why don't you share with us your story? So you co-founded Self-Publishing Formula. You have video production. Why don't you share with us your story as you're becoming an author? Yeah, that's um, something that took me by surprise, really. I mean, my life has been a series of, uh, probably, where should we say, seven to ten year sections, and then things change for me quite rapidly. Um, a fairly slow start. I flunked school and was lazy and uh, unfocused and drifted into a sort of career in computing, uh, which I really loathed, although it was quite uh, financially lucrative, but I just loathed it. And in my, I guess, mid-twenties, kind of woke up and uh, started working and all those things my parents said to me that if you work hard, things happen that I didn't believe suddenly started to happen for me. And I haven't really looked back. So I I worked my way into the BBC. Um, you know, it's one of the premier broadcasting organisations on the planet and lucky to have it uh, in my country here. And you can join it in different ways. A really good way to do is to work really hard at school, get a degree in something like English or history and then a postgraduate in journalism a diploma and then go in that way or the really difficult way to do it is in your mid-20s when you've got a really aggressive nine-to-five job which is much more than nine-to-five and turning up in the evenings and weekends at local radio stations working another shift and I did that for nearly two years nearly killed me but it started with me applying for a job at a local radio station and, and them phoning me up saying laughing down the phone saying look you're you have absolutely no way of getting this job but do you want to come in and make the teeth the teams and, and see what's, what's what. And then two years later, after all, all that slog, when that same job came up, I was the only person who was ever going to get it. So I'd got myself into that position. And then, yeah, I became this BBC reporter and quickly became a presenter. They quite liked me on air. Um, I think I'm ha- lucky I've sort of blessed with a voice that seems to work. And I'm saying that now, everyone's judging me now uh, over the <laughs> Skype signal, but it seemed to work. And yeah. I really enjoyed it. And I focused on uh, military stuff, which I come from a sort of military background, which I'll come on to probably later when we talk about the book and uh, from my father and so on. So I 
most of the newsroom were filled, filled with people who, for whom the military was, they had no idea about it, and so they mislabeled aircraft and, and aircraft carriers, etc. And I was the one nerd in the room who knew what everything was. And that's the sort of edge that gets you ahead in a newsroom. If you find a little niche that you, everyone turns to you on those moments. And uh, it just so happened we had a lot of those moments, like in Iraq and Kosovo, and I went all around the world, actually, uh, doing stuff with the BBC. Um, and I did that, you know, for 12 years. I was, you know, a reporter and, and running around and presenting a bit in the studio. So I enjoyed less, to be honest, but enjoyed the reporting. And just got to that point where I was on, it's a very slow process, probably the same in CBS and ABC, etc. You see the same faces on air who were there 20 years ago. It's so the same in the BBC. So they call it Dead Man's Boots and you kind of wait to go up the tree and it's slow. And I was... Uh, I went out to after the Iraq war into that area, and I kind of, for the first time, started to think I had children at that point. My daughter was born in 2003, that maybe I didn't want to, you know, I didn't feel the the risk setting me alight anymore in the way that it used to. And that's not, I didn't make a conscious decision about leaving, but at that time, a little job advert caught my eye uh, in the paper, which said that uh, the British Board of Film Classification was looking for film video and video games examiners. Now, for some reason, I've always known about the BBFC in, in quite a lot of detail. I've fairly closely followed them. I think I wrote a couple of letters to them as teenagers when I disagreed with their certificates. This was the equivalent of the MPAA in the States. And uh, I'm fascinated. Which, with which we had a discussion in Florida about this. So tell people what the NPPA is. Yeah, so the MPAA, the Motion, Motion Picture Association of America, uh, is the organization which does a lot of things. But among them, it issues the film certificates, the age ratings for films and video, video that's sold uh, on the gotcha. shelves. So that's your PG, your PG-13, your R, uh, and your NC-17, I believe, uh, above that. Um, in the UK, the certification system is probably more robust, uh, it's certainly older, and it's more adhered to. Um, your, your R is quite a generous one, because you can go to an R film, uh, you know, Pulp Fiction was an R, you can go to that uh, age 12, as long as you get somebody over the age of 17. In the UK, uh, that used to be an X, is now an, an 18, um, but the same thing, you cannot go to it unless you're an adult, you know, over 18, 18 or over. So it governs your life a little bit. When you're 15 and 16, you can't see the 18s. When you're 13 and 14, you can't see the 15s. And um, so for someone like me, who's a film nerd uh, as well, it, it, you know, it, was a, it was a big thing for me. So I saw this little advert and I applied for it. And guess what? Lots of people want a job where you watch films all day. So I got another one of those phone calls and they said, uh, you know, 1,200 people have applied. We've got six positions. Um, but he, at the end of the conversation was he said to me, uh, would you like to come along and apply? And, and you've been shortlisted. So I got into the first 150. Um, and then there was a quite long-winded process that went down to 30. We got invited to the filming day. The screening day was 30. So you sat in a theatre with these other people with a notepad and paper, and they showed you five or six items. They showed you a full-length feature film, which was an art house, German homoerotic feature film from the 1980s. They showed you Happy Tree Friends, a slightly sort of childish but violent cartoon, a bit like Itchy and Scratchy, <laughs> to try and puzzle you about it. Um, an episode Happy of, Tree Friends. That's yeah, great. an episode of Doctor Who where they tortured a Dalek. And uh, some adult entertainment, pure adult entertainment, two versions of that. 
because uh, that's all the stuff, stuff you're going to be watching. Yeah, because one's not enough. <laughs> no, exactly. Well, <laughs> there was one on each side, if that makes sense to you. Oh, great. Okay, without going into too much detail. Um, but they obviously they need to know that you're going to be analytical and, and impartial in that sense. You're not bringing your own. I mean, you can absolutely bring your own moral base to it. That's important. But there's a law of the land as well, and the law allows certain things, and you've got to be a judge of that. So whilst you can sit around a table and, 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 and argue from your own position, you also need to do a fairly uh, academic assessment of what you see. So we did all of that anyway. I got through, and then I got the interview, and then I was offered the job. So cut a long story short. And that was uh, an amazing moment. The BBC were very, very kind to me and gave me a, a 12-month career break so I could go off for 12 months and do this, and if I didn't like it, come back and resume my career, which is amazing. It was a good relationship I had there, but... I think a few months into this job, I realised that this was a fascinating, uh, unique opportunity to do this. And I ended up representing the BBFC at meetings in the EU, in, in Europe and uh, in, in government, talking to ministers about policy. It's a small organisation that has a, packs a lot of weight. Um, and the BBC had 27,000 employees. The BBFC had 60. So you were close to the, the chief executive or the director and you worked at a, a level I hadn't worked at before. And, I love that. Um, and then another sort of seven years passed and I had another one of those moments where I thought, I can't do this forever. I can't sit in a dock mm. room watching films forever. Um, and two things happened, I suppose. One is, during that period, I noticed NaNoWriMo. I mean, or however you pronounce it. How do you pronounce it? I, I pronounce it NaNoWriMo. NaNoWriMo. That's probably correct. I've always said NaNoWriMo. Anyway, I sat there, I think it must have been 15 uh, sorry, no, I, I left in 13. It must have been 12 or 11 or 12. Anyway, actually, I might have a certificate on my wall. I do. 10. It was 2010. I got the certificate mm. I finished it. So I sat there uh, with, a, with a list of WWE wrestling to watch. It was about four hours. And you kind of have to watch it all the way through, of course, because at any moment they could just do something, particularly with wrestling, that, you know, for a younger category might not be suitable. But at the same time, you can kind of half concentrate on something else and look at it over the rim of your glasses. And I saw this, and a friend of mine tweeted, and he said, oh, I'm going to do this, and he sent the link uh, just to stop myself um, going insane. And I thought, that looks good. And I opened a Word document, and I wrote the first chapter of a novel that I had no idea was in me at all. Um, and by the end of the month, I'd done 50,000 words. I almost stopped, but the BBC... Um, one of my old colleagues at the BBC heard I was doing it and got me in on Radio 4, the big um, national radio station in the UK, and asked me to do an interview. But she booked it for the following Thursday, and that was the point at which nearly everybody gives up NaNoWriMo. But because I knew I was going to be on the BBC the following Thursday, I pushed through. So uh, when I turned up the next week, I was still doing it. I'd broken the back of it, and I got that finished. I went on and finished the novel, which is about 90,000 words at that point, and then let that sit in a drawer Meanwhile, took voluntary redundancy from the BBFC when they offered it, set up a video production business because I knew how to make films and tell stories in my BBC days with a man called John Dyer and one other guy called John Stone. And the three of us still have that company. It's still going. And uh, that kind of was OK. It made the same living that I earned from the BBC and from the BBFC. Very difficult business to scale, though, because basically you get a job and you turn up and you film and produce it, even if you employ other people to do it. You know, it's, it, unless you're going to employ thousands of people, and no video production company has thousands, um, that's pretty much it. And so uh, almost immediately having had, 
had that amazing feeling of leaving the nine to five for the first time in my life. I started at about 19 and left at 40, mid 40s. Suddenly had this, this amazing feeling of working for myself, which I loved, and then very quickly realized I still was kind of working for other people because all your clients were corporations and the same kind of, you know, worse environments than I even worked at the BBC. So, so we started thinking about something else and we, we got involved in a project in Europe and a healthcare thing that was scalable. Uh, but we worked very hard on that. We put some money into that as well. That didn't work. And a couple of people came along and, and suggested a training course, which we thought was a really good idea uh, based on the police forces in the UK. But they didn't really pull their weight in the project and that didn't work. And in the middle of that, when we we're just thinking this is not going to work as well, one of my old BBFC film examiner buddies called me, phoned me, uh, Mark Dawson. And he said, um, I've had this idea for doing an online course because they're they're going very well at the moment and I've really, really know how this stuff works in self-publishing. I think I can do an online course that'd be really useful. Could you do the video for it? Um, so I hung up, said yes, we'll meet and have a coffee, hung up, phoned John Dyer and I just, just had that spider sense in the back of my mind. I said to John, this, this could be the one. I also said to him, one of these things has to work, right? <laughs> we keep <laughs> we keep starting new projects. One of them's got to work, right? And we met Mark in the South Bank in London, the BFI, which is the British Film Institute, and they've got a nice cafe there, had a cappuccino, sketched out a company, and sketched out the idea of how this would work, pivoted a couple of times as we pulled the course together, and produced Facebook ads for authors uh, in June last year, and we put it up for sale for the first time. Now, that company has very quickly overtaken the video production business in terms of turnover and size and potential, and is the ultimate scalable type of item you create it once and it takes a huge amount of managing and running day to day but nonetheless you know you're not going in and making a new course every time you sell one which is both video production and mark is a genius you know he's he's a nitty um detailed individual who gets to the bottom of things and understands how they work and has a gift for passing that on to willing people who want to follow him uh, which is the heart of it. So that's kind of that was a very long answer to where I am today. James, what I I think I've heard through this entire process is you have experienced what so many authors are experiencing right now is that they're going through this journey of well, what am I going to do now? What am I going to do now? That's not working. That's what I could do now. And so they arrive, and in a second we're going to talk about your career as an author. Uh, they arrive at these moments where they taste like, oh, my gosh, freedom is here, uh, but they're just waiting for that next thing. When you did that first NaNoWriMo, was there, did you publish that book? Like, what happened to that book? Well, that, that is the book that is my first novel, which sat mm. doing pretty much nothing for a couple of years, and I... I, I'm not sure what spurred me on, but I got it out again and rewrote it from the beginning. So it was quite, it wasn't a simple story. It was in heart, in essence, a simple story, but I overcomplicated it because I had in my mind a very not particularly well-researched idea of what a novel is. Despite reading novels all my life, mm -hmm. I didn't really know what a novel was or what was involved in it. And in my mind, I thought it was quite a complicated beast and you had to have lots of backstories and lots of characters doing parallel things and they would all interwine and end up at the same point or, or some sort of point. And that obviously some novels do kind of work like that. But actually, what I've been good at all my life, and I love, is simple stories, compelling, gripping stories where you want to know what happens next. And actually, they're quite simple. They can be quite simple. So 
I I stripped it down. I stripped out the father-in-law who was the politician, all these sort of characters I'd created along the way, to its bare story. Um, rewrote it and also two-thirds rewrote it, kind of put it away again. I don't really know. I can't adequately explain why I love the idea of writing a novel. I love the idea of going to the next stage, but also stop the project and do nothing about it for, you know. So wait a second, wait a second, wait. where are you today? So where I am today, so when this project started in SPF <laughs> last year, uh, you know, obviously Mark knew this novel existed. Um, yeah. And uh, he's been giving me some encouragement. He sort of pointed out that if you can write 50,000 words in a month, uh, that's mm-hmm. the basis for some of the technical skills that you need, you know, to, to do mm-hmm. the novel. There's a long way to go from there. But um, so he's encouraged me. And then... We were initially going to, our first course was going to be a real introduction to people in my position. That is, that you've got a novel, you're coming towards the end of a novel, and you're going to market it, but you don't really know where to start. So that was the beginning idea we had. We actually thought that was too huge, too much involved in that, so many uh, aspects to it, that we decided in the end just to focus on Facebook ads and Facebook marketing which is also coalesced into YouTube and, and Twitter ads, but basically social media advertising. And that's quite detailed, and it lends itself to people who are already published, already self-published, and already marketing. So it's more advanced. What we decided to do middle of this year, having had success with three launches in a row of that course and got a bit of money in the bank to give us some time to breathe, we decided to go back to that original idea. So the 101 course is what we're working on now, and that'll be launched in the autumn. And that really is for me. It's for that person who who wants to become a commercially successful writer, perhaps has one book. Now, because it's about me, Mark said, well, why don't we use you? So the podcast that we do uses me as a first-time author, Mark, as an experienced one. There's a bit of interplay there. And even more terrifyingly, uh, Mark's going to actually use my novel in the course. So he's already started. He's taken my Scrivener project, which is quite a terrifying prospect for somebody who's never had their novel read by anybody else at all. So where is it now? It is having stripped it all the way back down. It came back down to about thirty or 40,000 words, about the two-thirds mark. I've written it up to, I think there are two and a half chapters left. I mean, there's not much left to actually fill in the blanks, but every time I go to the book now, I rewrite chapters. I mean, I'm constantly mm-hmm. rewriting it, constantly editing it, constantly changing. There's not huge things anymore, which is a progress, I think, smaller things, the way that I've developed characters. I, I spend, I'm spending a lot of time lying in bed when I go to bed at night thinking about what needs to have happened to make something justifiable later, and then I go back and, and, and write that. So it's, a, it's become a very slow last part of it. Um, I'm keen to get onto a structural edit soon, but um, it's about, I don't know how many words is it now, 50 or 60,000, 56,000, looking up my, I have a word count thing on the wall. Uh, to encourage me to do at least a thousand a day at the moment. So when you're looking at that, James, you're now writing about a thousand uh, a day, uh, and this actually is being re- this podcast being released November third. So folks are early in in their own nano rimo. Is, is there anything that you would be saying to encourage them in that that initial stage? That hey, they're just starting. Like, what would you say to them? Just write. I mean, that was the that was the thing that nano rimo gifted me and it's something you hear experienced writers say to you uh, Bella Andre was a very good uh, interview we had earlier this year about this um, that there's a point at which where you think I can't write because I've, I've come to a dead end or I don't know what to write 
that actually doesn't matter because you will always write. You'll sit down and even if it's borderline gibberish, even if it doesn't make much sense to you, just sit down and write. And with NaNoWriMo, you've got 1,666.66 words to do a day on average. As Anyone who does NaNoWriMo will have done the calculation at some point. Um, you need to do that writing every day. You can't have a day when you think, um, oh, I'm a bit of a dead end because that will become two days and very quickly a week and then it's over. You're done. Mm. Um, so NaNoWriMo, if you, if you press on, you simply put your bum on a seat, put your fingers on a keyboard and start writing every day. And believe me, 30 seconds into that bit where you think, I don't know what to write, you're there, you're writing and you wonder what you're worried about. But actually, it's a very, very loud voice in your head without the pressure of NaNoWriMo. It's a very um, believable, credible pressure in your mind, which is you don't really know what to write now. And that's enough for you to not even open the Scrivener file or the Word document for a long time. So beware that voice, ignore it and write even if it makes no sense. It's, it's, that's my clear advice. And it's, it's, it was a great Absolutely. lesson. And James, you, you know, this question we normally are asking somebody who has published at least a book or several books. But when I when I think of you, you're you're at this stage so you can answer it with in pure honesty. So when you look at what what are the things that you're doing to help you sell books, that is build your marketing what are you doing? Like, what what are the things, the three things that you're doing that are going to help you to sell more books today? Well, we're going to. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm really going to focus on on building up a mailing list. That's that's the you know the number one almost sole focus for the next twelve months with this book. So I guess the two things I'm going to do is number one, build up the mailing list, and number two, write the second book. Um, to to get to the point where after a year and a half to two years, I want to have three books, a mailing list, and selling two of them and using one as the as the lead magnet. And I'm pretty clear about that, and I know it's quite traditional for lots of people, but it's still a bit of an anathema for lots of other people, particularly, and I can understand that. Uh, you know, this work started on, you know, whatever it was, the 1st of November 2010. Huge amounts of hours have gone into this novel, and I'm going to give it away to whoever asks for it. Uh, when I start and what's the there. what's the psychology behind this? Like what what's going on for you that? And I I've recently been challenged with this question. Somebody asking me, but why why give away that free book? What's what's the leverage for that? Well, it's a simple mathematical calculation in that you will get people who are interested in your writing, interested in the type of books you're going to write, and you're in contact with them, and that is a very so you get a warm list of people to sell your later books to, and that is huge. Uh, it is the foundation for a financially successful author career. In fact, unless you're extraordinarily lucky, there's almost no other way to do it. I mean, you can get a traditional publishing deal or you can just happen one way or another. I don't know, get a, an interview on, on CBS or BBC at the right time and people search your book and it gives you that impetus. But that noise in the market is getting bigger and bigger. And getting yourself your own mini business with its own marketing list, its own uh, audience is is never been more critical. Now I'm lucky because I work closely with Mark, and this is you know this is a doctrine that he lives by, and we deal with people who uh, you know who contact us from time to time, and they say, well I don't really want to give a book away. What what else do you suggest I do? And I think, well, what are you going to give a car away? I mean, and, and in fact, there's no point in giving a car away because you're going to get people interested in cars. You've got to give your book away, as far as I can tell. You could potentially, I suppose, get away with 
chapters, but I think that works better for established authors um, who people have heard of a little bit or have got some sort of profile that people might want to read the first two chapters of their new novel because they're excited and it's a good marketing bit. But for the rest of us, you give a book away, you sell it as best you can, you design the best possible Facebook adverts for it, you make them as honest about the book as possible so that the audience that do come in are the right audience and going to stick with you. So it's not a, you know, there's a, there is a psychology in terms of, you know, giving away something you've slaved over. Um, but for me, it's not a big one because I've seen, I've seen how it works. And James, kind of the spe- it's a behind the scenes question because you know Mark, you've known him for years. Is he an outlier? Is, is, is his experience an outlier where us mere mortals, us just writers, maybe even me and you, uh, are just not going to see the success that he saw because there's something special that he's doing that nobody else is doing? Well, what's interesting about that is I think six months ago I probably would have said yes to that. I would have said that he is an outlier and that we can, the rest of us mere mortals, as you say, can try to do 25% of what he's doing. And that would be enough for us to be successful because that would be, you know, he's probably going to have a million dollars this year from his book writing income. So a quarter of a million dollars would be okay, right, uh, for your books. <laughs> but you know what? I've had so much contact now with students of our course and other people who are in the community that uh, he's not an outlier. Um, you know, there's a guy called Adam Croft uh, who's going to do over a million pounds this year using Facebook advertising, um, and that's $1.6 million. Actually, it's, today it's $1.3 million, but that's only because the pound is crashing as we speak. Um, but normally it's about $1.5 million. Uh, we sat around at Nink in Florida, where you were with us, Sean, uh, a couple of weeks ago in the evening, going around the table one night over a couple of beers with the authors who was, you know, Let's let's get honest here. Who, what income are you all getting? And so the profit income around mm-hmm. the table was sixty thousand dollars a month, thirty thousand dollars a month, fifty thousand dollars a month, twenty thousand dollars a month. I mean these, and these were routine. These were young. Actually, three or four of them were young women uh, who were writing in the fantasy kind of urban fantasy suspense areas. Mm-hmm. A couple of them a bit more uh, life experience, but they were following what Mark is teaching, and not necessarily, I'm not saying this is an advert for his course, they weren't necessarily students of the course, most of them were actually, mm-hmm. but a couple of them just were, had got it, you know, they understood this was where he needed to work at. And so I look back at Mark, and he's being beaten by quite a few of the people <laughs> who he's trained, so he's not an outlier, he's just very good at his stuff, but there are people who, for one reason or another, maybe their, their books have a better market, uh, are doing better than him, and it does irritate him, I can tell you now. Well, James, uh, I this went very fast, and I do appreciate the time that you spent with us at the Author Hangout. Uh, why don't you share with people how they can connect with you, and then we'll say goodbye. Yeah, well, we have uh, selfpublishingformula.com is our basically our blog website, and uh, you know we listen to your podcast. I hope you listen to ours as well, but we have uh, probably some of the same guests, and some of them are a little bit different. Um, and you can join our Facebook groups and so on there. Um, my book, I'd like to tell you the title of it, but Mark has told me I need to change the title, so I'm currently mulling that over. But at the moment, it's called Happy Hour uh, by James Blatch. I will stick with my name uh, for it, um, but I need to come up with a new title, so I can't oh, even, I can't even po- uh, you know, plug it for you. And when that is, uh, we'll make sure that's included in the show notes. And uh, again, thank you, James, for spending time with us. Thank you so much, Sean.
Thanks for listening to the Author Hangout. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher to get the new episodes delivered directly to your device. Watch the video from this episode and get the transcript at theauthorhangout.com. The Author Hangout is brought to you by bookmarketingtools.com. As an author, there is nothing like putting the finishing touches on your book and getting it ready to release to the world. Writing a book is no small accomplishment, and you're probably eager to start receiving some feedback in the form of reviews. So how do you go about getting reviews for your ebook? Well, Book Marketing Tools has a free guide to answer that question, which can be downloaded today at theauthorhangout.com slash review guide. And in this guide, we will talk about everything you need to do in order to get reviews through the pre and post publication of your ebook. And like our ultimate author checklist, we provide you a clear checklist of what you need to do to get more reviews. So if you need reviews for your book and are struggling to figure out how to get them, then go to theauthorhangout.com slash review guide and download the guide, Getting Reviews for Your Ebook Today.